Warren Buffett and Carol Loomis are here. He's one of the world's most successful investors and a longtime friend of this program. She is the legendary Fortune magazine writer who has followed his career since he was a 35-year-old hedge fund manager from Omaha. Back in 1966, she couldn't even get his name right. When Carol Loomis made the first mention of Warren Buffett in Fortune, she spelled his name with only one T. It was an unlikely start to a beautiful friendship and to Fortune's coverage of the man who we have come to know as the chairman of Berkshire Hathaway. Tap Dancing to Work is Carol Loomis's new book. It is a collection of articles telling the remarkable story of Warren Buffett. It is also a story about friendship. I am pleased to have them together at this table. Welcome. Thank you. It's so good to have you both been here separately, but to have you together is terrific. <laughs> I want to talk about the book and about the career and about Fortune magazine and the relationship. But first, uh, this morning we all got up to read an op-ed by you called A Minimum Tax for the Wealthy. Uh, and you start off by saying that most investors you know, if it's a good deal, they're not going to be upset about the fact that they're going to have to pay some tax. Every investor I know. I never, <laughs> I'm, I'm 82 years old and I'm looking like Diogenes. I'm out there looking for that investor who says, I think I'll pass on this chance to make a lot of money even fast. Though, even if it's a certain deal, I'm going to pass because Charlie, of tax. I'm going to call you tonight at midnight. I'm going to be panning and I'm going to say this is the best idea I've ever had. And are you going to say, how much will the tax I, have to <laughs> I don't think so. Here's how you end the article. You say, in the meantime, maybe you'll run into someone with a terrific investment idea who won't go far with it because of the tax he would owe when it succeeds. Send him my way. Let me unburden him. <laughs> that offer goes to all viewers. <laughs> all right, you start that, but you have a serious purpose here. Sure. What is the, the minimum tax that you think ought to be done today by Congress and not wait for all the time it might take and all the deals it might take to reform the tax code? I think on incomes of over one million, that the excess over one million should be have a minimum tax of 30 percent. Uh, as you know, they're talking about bringing the top tax rate up to 39.6, right, and right. right now the tax rate's 30, uh, 36. So, so for, if you make from $1 million to $10 million, a minimum tax of 30%. On the million to $10 million, right. right. And then over $10 million, 35%. And yeah. the reason I'm suggesting that is because the 400 highest taxpayers in the most recent year, we have figures for 2009, who had average incomes of $202 million, uh, half of those people paid at a rate below 20%, a quarter pay, paid at a rate below 15%, and believe it or not, six, average income of $202 million, paid nothing. I mean, they were members of Romney's 47%. I mean, I, and I suspect he got their vote, but just a bunch of moochers, just a bunch of moochers. <laughs> you think that they voted for him, did they? Yeah, but, but it, you know, it, it, they're, well, we've conducted a survey three times in my office in three different years, and the office has between 16 and probably 21 employees during that period. And each time my tax rate was considerably lower, I'm talking about payroll taxes plus income taxes, considerably lower than anybody else in the office. And these, these people made various incomes. And, and the tax law in many cases is not progressive. I think the tax law should be progressive. I think that when people make 15 or 20 million or 200 million and pay a 10% rate, I think, uh, I think somebody should be done about it. you say that, people step forward and say, well, that's because most of the income comes from dividends, which is taxed at a lower rate. Well, most, they would probably say most of it comes from capital gains, right. and that's taxed at a lower rate. I mean, this, capital gains. This, yeah, this, capital just, gains. this just makes sure 
that people that have really high incomes pay at a rate that's sort of like the people next door to them are, you know, who are making $100,000 a year or something of the sort. If you had automatic powers to establish what uh, the, the tax rate should be, both for, for capital gains and for ordinary income, what would you set it at? Well, I would, I would probably have, I, w I would probably uh, feel that capital gains should be at least at the 25% level. Uh, and I would, and, 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 and dividends should be as ordinary income. And I would have a more progressive tax system that we have. But since, since the lobbyists and the lawyers for the rich are so good at getting around these things, I would have a minimum tax so that no matter who your lobbyist or lawyer was, if you, if you had 10 million or 20 million of income, you paid at a rate uh, comparable to what most of the people who are watching this program pay. You write about and you know enormously successful businessmen and women. Do you think that if you sat down in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, they would agree with him or not? Well, I don't think I don't think it would be unanimous by any means. No. Well, I, majority. I does I, he represent a voice in the wilderness for very wealthy people in the ideas he has about what's necessary and fair to do? I think there are a lot of people who agree with him, but I'm not sure that it would be over 50 percent by any means. Do you um, think he's right? I do think he's right. And I, I must say, my husband worked on Wall Street during a time when uh, uh, there was a lot of income associated with working on Wall Street. And so I'm not talking as someone who wouldn't be subject to quite a lot of tax. And I think the problem is no one's ever talking about the payroll tax. That just doesn't ever come into the discussion. But when you add it in, as Warren has pointed out that you should do, it makes a huge difference. And uh, so I do think he's right. Uh, you hope that the president will be responsive to this. You think it's what ought to happen today. I think the, I hope the president and the Congress is responsive yeah. to it. I think that I, I don't think we should wait around to have a per, there are all kinds of things wrong with the tax code and reform is called for expenditure cuts are called for. But. I don't want to wait around until all of that stuff is done to do some things that are obvious now. So the people who talk reform, some of them, uh, many of them, really are seeking reform. But some of them are saying reform because it just means pushing things down the road another year or two. And I, I do not want to have something that obviously should be done be held hostage to getting everything done. Uh, so therefore, do the minimum tax now. I'd yeah. like to say, I'd like to see starting January 1st. Um, what happens if the fiscal cliff uh, comes? and happens, what will it do to our economy? I, I don't think it'll do that much because I think people will assume that uh, a solution will be found quite promptly. It's a little like the debt ceiling uh, question. I mean, people, the rest of the world may think that we're idiotic at times, but they don't think we're going to commit suicide. And, and uh, I, so I think if, I hope something gets worked out before January 1st, but if, if it goes a little bit beyond that, I do not so think that. So January 10th or, or February 2nd? I, I will not be summoned. If you guaranteed me that the fiscal cliff, we would go past that, I wouldn't sell the share of stock today. That you have that confidence that in the end they will fix it. Yeah, and that, and that this economy works. Is it getting better? It's getting better. It's been getting better since uh, really the summer of 2009. And, you know, we've had four years straight now where the stock market's given a positive return. I mean, the, the economy's getting better. We had a tremendous bubble. And, and, and when it burst, it, was, it had ramifications for all aspects of society. And it was magnified by the abuses that had taken place in, 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 in Wall Street and all kinds of places. So the dominoes were lined up. We had plenty of problems. But 
we've been on we've been on the men now for uh, for three years and it, and it's taken a long time because it was a big problem but we are getting better all the time this book is about tap dancing to work um why did you choose that title <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you i've learned a lot about the publishing world and uh, in the last few months and i learned that the title is a uh, uh, process of negotiation yeah. uh, between the publisher and you and I came up with this after we'd considered two or three others and uh, uh, the publisher just uh, displaying great judgment said I think that's a wonderful title let's go with it and uh, that's what happened because he is a man who tap dances to work has this, forever and has talked about it I mean in right. interviews oh, with sure. you you have talked about tap dancing it is someone you explain to me what tap dancing well it just means that I can hardly wait to get to work in the morning <laughs> <laughs> and, and I mean it's the most exciting part of the day <laughs> is getting there and I, I uh, there's never been a day I haven't looked forward to. Uh, Do you like Monday through Friday better than Saturday and Sunday? It depends whether Nebraska's playing football <laughs> on Saturday. But, uh, yeah, or, normally or whether I, they're playing Notre Dame. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, I don't want us to play Notre Dame this year. But the, uh, what makes you think he doesn't go to the office on Saturday and Sunday? Uh, <laughs> I go to the office on Saturday. And but but you, what you do at the office or what you do at home is the same thing. You're reading much. and on the phone. That's I'm what you and, do. I'm reading and thinking and yeah. on the phone and talking to friends and uh, no there's very little difference in my in, 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 in Saturday and Sunday from the weekdays a little more action during the week though <laughs> <laughs> this reminds me of what surprised you most about him uh, in terms of advice you asked him what was the worst advice I asked Isn't him what the what, best advice well we were we were doing a big act and right. he was going to be on the cover and uh, so I without truly knowing the answer to the question I said all right now tell me what is the best advice you've ever gotten in your life from anyone and he proceeded to talk for a long time about the worst advice that he had ever gotten and so I went back and told my managing editor this with probably a kind of uh, with my head down and um, and thinking well I hadn't come back with quite the right thing and we put him on the cover anyway so but what's interesting is what you the way you answered the question which is smart people told you don't go into the securities business right uh, and, and what did you read from that? Because you went into the security business. And yeah, you... not only smart people, but people that love me and that I love them. So, I mean, they were giving me their best advice. Uh, because they thought you weren't ready for it or the security business was a bad business they, at that they, time? They thought stocks were selling too high because the Dow Jones was above 200. And I always feel on almost anything that if you're going to do it, get started. <laughs> and I mean, the idea of sitting around and waiting for a different time did not did not register with me. Uh, now, it's also possible that I was 20 years old then, and, and, and you know, I was behaving like I was about 14 and <laughs> looked like I was about 16 or something. Yeah, yeah. So they that may have been their nice way of telling me, grow up a little bit before you do it. But beyond that, though, they, re they really did feel this. I mean, here were the two guys I admire the most in the world, and they told me they thought the stock market was too high. Was this your father and Ben My Graham? My father and Ben Graham, and I, I, I just said, listen, I want to get going. You know, I, I, I didn't want to go to college. Well, but the point is you'd already been going because you'd already been investing since you were 11 years old. That's true, but now I can do it full time. <laughs> so the first time you met this guy, right. you were actually doing a piece. Before you met him, you were doing a piece uh, on the hedge fund guy. What's his name? Alfred Winslow uh, Jones. Alfred Winslow Jones. Right. Sort of the very man, famous. Very famous guy. And the name... Buffett, Buffett came, came up. up. Uh, Sam Stamen, a bridge player, uh, was an investor in this strange thing called Buffett Partnership Limited. Yeah. And I just blithely went ahead and spelled it with only one T. So I, the first time that he was ever in Fortune, 
uh, we misspelled his name. And you know, I, I say that that's the editorial we because it was I who did it. And since she's never been wrong, I've been spending it with one she ever said. <laughs> uh, your husband, John Loomis, yes. met him first. Yes, he did. And came back and said what? He said, I think I've just met the smartest investor in the country. And, of course, I'm sure, like wives do, I rolled my eyes and thought, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then I met him with his wife, first wife, Susie, and I, I realized how terribly impressive he was. And uh, from that day forward, I thought that, uh, too. I never had it. before Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, well, Ber oh, right he had taken over Berkshire Hathaway, but it was, nobody even knew the name. It was totally insignificant. Um, and um, so... The, we, then we worked up from that one sentence with the word misspelled to two paragraphs in 1970. But by 1977, we had a 7,000-word uh, piece by Warren himself. We recognized that he was a very good writer, and we, we went forward with that, too. And so there, this book has a dozen pieces by him, and that the one I've just mentioned is only one. What was that piece, the first piece? Well, that was how inflation swindles the equity investor. Right? But people still talk about that piece. Uh, I'm not sure what they well, say about it. No, I read that. They, now, there's still people. They write. They write him about it. They, they, write, they write us about it. It's uh, it's a famous piece. It really is. Well, if you were writing today the same kind of piece, and perhaps you are, other than the letter to stockholders, uh, what would you be saying about where we are? I would say that uh, I would do a lot of historical things sure. and all that. But but basically, I would say that for most, overwhelmingly, for people that uh, can invest over time. That, uh, that equities are the best place to put their money. I should also talk about the letter to the stockholders. Uh, you came in to do, you, you knew her, you admired her, you thought she's the best business writer you'd ever met. Absolutely. And still do. Yep. <laughs> Tell me about the letter to stockholders and what you want to do with that and who you're addressing in your own mind's eye. I'm addressing partners. They're, they're my, they're, they're, 600,000 of them, but in my mind, I usually have my two sisters, Bertie and Doris, and they're, they're very bright. Uh, they don't work in the financial world. They've been gone for a year, metaphorically, and they've got a lot of their money in Berkshire, and I want to tell them what I think is important to them, what I would want them to tell me if our positions were reversed. So I try to do that, and then I occasionally branch into an essay on something that I think may be important to the investment world generally. Or even the country. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and you got involved in the beginning. Well, I got involved with the letter in 1977. Right. And, uh, Warren and, said, uh, take a look well, at this. Well, Warren uh, sent it to me and said, um, uh, I'm trying something new with the annual report. Would you just look it over and tell me what you think? And um, I, I was very timid in what I came back yeah. with. I said, I think I suggested changing a the to an a. No. And then uh, that seemed to work all right. And uh, uh, so the next year he sent it again, and then it became a routine where he would write it in longhand. Uh, his assistant would type it, and it would come to me, and then we would have drafts flying back and forth with uh, suggestions from me. Well, I think there's a story in here, too, that when the first thing you wrote, uh, the editors wanted to change some things. Was it the first thing? And, and basically, they almost killed the article because you, you didn't want that much editing. Well, and, and, and I think that was the 1977 article. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. Meg Greenfield, who was a famous... Uh, uh, writer and uh, for Newsweek and, Great and uh, the editorial. Brown, yeah. I, I showed her the uh, the article I'd written, and Meg very gently said to me, "Warren, you don't have to tell everything you know in one article." 
<laughs> I was like, well, they get wounded back. <laughs> There's a story in there that the, that the, the the, one of the editors uh, the, at Fortune went in, the one who was assigned to the piece and went out to Omaha to get him to change certain things, called up and said, I'm not having too much luck getting him to change anything. <laughs> Maybe we should think about not running this. And the managing editor said, no, I think it's worthwhile. And so we did, 7,000 words without many pictures, uh, really not about, not any pictures. And, and so what does she do now, just dotting I's and crawling? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, for one thing, I, 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 I rewrite it about 10 times before I send it to her. her. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and then I send it to her, and, and, it, and she never tries to change the content or anything like that, but, but she points out when the flow is wrong, where there are lots of grammatical errors, all kinds of things, and, and sometimes she'll write, this is my least favorite part of the report, which is... <laughs> and usually it is. <laughs> so how many years has it been, this friendship? Well, what is that? 35. 35 years. Although, although the friendship's been longer than yeah, that. Yeah, the friendship yeah, goes back to 1967. Yeah. So it's for... She has a charm bracelet. She has, what, four charm bracelets? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. With every, a replica of every, every uh, couple right. of every report. <laughs> so what's the secret to the friendship? Well, uh, I, it's certainly on my part, all kinds of things. I mean, she's a wonderful friend, but she, she, she also is one of the smartest people I've ever seen, and, and she's objective, and, and, and in a very, very nice way, she tells me when I'm <laughs> full of baloney, if you think that. Is that how you see it, Carolyn? Um, um, well, I, I, I do think that I'm one of the few people who argue with him. I do yeah. think that, uh, and I do sometimes really about the end of the report. You don't have people argue with you? Uh... <laughs> Uh, Charlie, my, my partner, Charlie yeah, Munger, Charlie, when we've never had an argument. We have a lot of disagreements. And whenever we have a disagreement, his clincher always is, Warren, when, when we get through talking about this, you'll agree with me because you're smart and I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> and I would include Charlie in the few people who argue with him. I just, I do think it's a, course, only yeah. a handful of That will argue people. with him. No. Here is what interests me. Um, why is he, does he have the record he does? And you have said in a conversation with me, he understands how to look at accounting statements and find the telling point, and maybe in a footnote. That's true. So that he'll see opportunity and see the future. He will. He has a, an ability to do that that I think is matched by very few other investors. And he has this broad, extensive knowledge of business, and I, I think maybe I said this to you, so when something new comes up, he has a frame of reference in which to place it. And then he adds this rationality that I really think uh, just a handful of investors. Well, he doesn't let emotion take over when he's considering whether to buy. He goes at the decision in a very rational way. Uh, and um, then the price goes down and he buys more, whereas most people panic and sell when the price goes down. And he just is, he's extremely disciplined in the way he thinks about investments. This will take a long time to explain, but, but how is it that you know value so well? So well, that if it goes down, you know the value hasn't changed, so you buy more. And so that you know the value, so you're not going to pay a nickel more than the value you see. I only get into situations where I do know the value. There's, there's thousands of companies whose value I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but I know, I know the ones that I know. <laughs> and, and, 
And incidentally, it isn't, it isn't, you don't pinpoint things. I mean, if somebody walks in this door now and they weigh between 300 and 350 pounds, I don't need to say they weigh 327 to say that they're fat. So, you know, so uh, if, 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 if they're in that zone, you know, I'm fine with it. And, uh, but I also know that there's all kinds of companies that I can't figure out. So I, I don't, uh, uh, so I do know, I usually know, uh, when I'm dealing with companies that I understand and then, uh, I do, Accounting is a language, and it's a language that I like. And, and, and a language you not only understand but like. I like it. Yeah, I mean, it I, speaks it, to you it, like it, music. It, it speaks really to speaks you. to me, and, and 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 when it speaks in a false voice, I can use, I can detect that sometimes too. So, uh, you know, I mean, it's you know, it it is almost like playing music. You know, when you when, I, when you look at an accounting statement, and it's not true of all companies. They're not true of all companies at all. But but you don't have to be right about. I don't have to be right about the ones I ignore. I mean, so I, when you see a footnote that says something to you, you just feel a kind of it's, emotional... It's in the footnotes. <laughs> You're right. I mean, the footnotes, the footnotes are... are the tip good off. or bad, there's a story. There, there's a tip-off there, yeah. And, and Carol is very, very good at this, incidentally, herself. Yeah. Well, uh, it's so far down the ladder on this compared to where yeah. he is. Let's look at some of the investments at Berkshire. And some of this comes in. You, you still have a lot of Coca-Cola? A lot. <laughs> yeah, uh, you saw the value of that early on. Well, not early enough. I mean, I, I'm, uh, probably had my first soft drink in 1935, and I didn't buy the stock till 1988. So, you, no, I, I would, I would put me in the slow class on that one. Uh, you, you still have a lot of Wells Fargo and buying more. We got a lot of Wells Fargo. Yeah, value there. You saw the sure. and and the qualities you look for. Management is one. Sure, and some kind of an enduring competitive advantage. Yeah. Enduring being the emphasis. I mean, you know, and, and I mean, hula hoops were great for a while, or bedrocks <laughs> yeah. and all that sort of thing. Yeah. But, but I like I like something where I think I can look out five or ten years and still see the same sort of advantage that uh, maintaining. So you just invested in John Deere. That wasn't me. No, we we have two other. Oh, okay, big, yeah. okay, but, but but you know what they're doing, do you not? I, no, I don't know what they're doing. I, I don't want to know what they're doing. They, Why is they, that? You, but well, because I get, were you hired to be sort of your... They manage, uh, they're the, managing each other around $4 billion right. or something right. like that. And you don't want to know what they're doing? No, I, I don't. I, they, they, have, they have the responsibility for managing that money. They've got to have full authority. They can't look at me and right. see whether I'm smiling or frowning over no. it. And they get paid based on how those securities do. You have said you're hunting for a big elephant. You bet. <laughs> yeah, the bigger the better. <laughs> What qualifies as a big elephant? Well, in terms of our present resources, probably something from twenty billion, maybe up a little bit. Hi. <laughs> well, it would depend on how, how attractive good. that elephant was. <laughs> <laughs> Some ele not all elephants look alike. Coming <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> to you, Carol, in just a moment. So you're looking around. How will you go about this process of looking for a big elephant? Because you've said that you know the trigger is you got your hand on the trigger. Absolutely. You're ready to fire. You bet. Uh, you got the money. You got 45 billion or whatever it is. Right. Enough. Yeah. No. <laughs> you got it sitting right there. Yeah. Uh, you're prepared to do it. Uh, how are you going to find the candidate? Well, if you're talking about buying an entire business, which right. we're talking right. about in this case, uh, I'm familiar with all the companies when you get to that size. Yeah, I mean, I've you. been to the elephant ground. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen them all. <laughs> and you know so, it, so it's really a question of when they, somebody at the company, the CEO, the board, yeah. is, is actually thinking about doing something. Uh, and then I can 
I can tell very quickly. Oh, you know whether they are open to... Oh, yeah, whether the initiative really has to come from, from them because... Uh, you know, Coca-Cola isn't for sale, Wells right. Fargo isn't for sale, right. 99% of the companies IBM's are not. IBM's not for sale. Sure. And so, it, and I know the universe of, of companies of this size we're talking about. And if I pick up the phone one day and, and somebody says, you know, we've really been thinking about things and we, we feel that we do better as a part of Berkshire, I'm ready to, you know, hop This is what's point. amazing, don't you think, Carol, is that a lot of the companies that have come to Berkshire Hathaway, they wanted to be there. That's right. You know, That's absolutely they make right. a phone call. I'm thinking about the Israeli company. Yeah. And somebody says, Mr. Buffett, could I come to Omaha and talk to you? Right. And and you're pretty quick on the draw to figure out whether you want to so go forward. Five or ten seconds, you <laughs> <laughs> Talk about that. Well, he... Because um, he, mergers is... Mergers. He, you know, he does make up his mind in in literally minutes, if not seconds, as to whether this is something he wants to consider further. Um, and... He will, within that much time, say to the guy on the other end of the phone, well, I'm interested, or, well, I don't think this is for us. Yeah. And, um, and he knows, he's seen this great universe of companies, and this is what I was talking about. He brings this frame of reference to it and knows that this company has nothing of a kind of eternal nature to offer, like Coca-Cola has something eternal to offer. You also get in this book about biggest mistakes. Right. I do. What's the biggest mistake this guy's made? Well, Warren himself would say that there uh, that there are acts of omission where right. he has known that he should buy a stock and hasn't bought it. Um, one of that he cited there is Fannie Mae. This is before oh, Fannie, Mae Fannie Mae got Mae into trouble. Name, right? <laughs> That's right. But he would have gotten out, I think, yeah. uh, because yeah. but he did get out of Freddie Mac, which yeah. was a case where he bought a lot and did get out at the right time, and uh, so. Uh, the biggest mistakes, uh, well, a couple of times he's been hurt by people who uh, erred in the way that they acted. There's just you no question about that. Hey, well, yeah. but but yeah. they were, but these, the person that I'm thinking about had done a remarkable amount, uh, David Sokol had right. done a remarkable amount for man. Berkshire Hathaway. And so I don't think it was uh, something that uh, Warren could have known that presented with a certain set of facts that David Sokol acted uh, in a way that didn't work. I bet you asked work. yourself that question, didn't you? Yeah. You yeah. did. Yeah. How could I have not seen? I don't know the answer. <laughs> you don't, could never, you no, don't know. No. You review in your mind, you don't and know. And he did a lot of good things for Berkshire. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, but you've said the hardest thing to do, and, and it doesn't happen that often, is to fire somebody. Yeah, it, it, it's absolutely miserable. That um, and you know, I, I don't have to do it very often, but I'd pay a lot of money <laughs> to have a designated fire. But the trouble is, the trouble is, I can't do it because these are people who are friends of mine. Uh, you, one of these cover stories, and, and you have to remind me which one it was. Uh, Signal, I think it was the one you wrote, the big profile of the transition from investor to CEO and manager, yes. showing that that Warren Buffett had those skills as well. Right. Well, there are several uh, uh, articles in the book that really pertain to that, but I think the one that uh, you have in mind is the inside story of Warren right. Buffett. That was the first uh, big that, profile. A big profile, and it was the first big article I ever wrote about Warren. I'd only written uh, two paragraphs, that kind of thing. And uh, it was 1988, and he was making the transition then. At the time, he had... Uh, 
six companies that he called the Sainted Six or Seven? I think six. Sainted Seven. Seven, that's right, Sainted Seven. And uh, names like Fetheimer that you right, are, right, they, you right. know, they don't ring wildly right, uh, right. They, even now. And um, But he was clearly uh, headed in that direction. And Charlie was helping him because Charlie was uh, pointing out to him the virtues of things like Seize Candy. And they were really, at that moment, uh, transitioning to uh, an, a company that had been distinguished by its investments to a company distinguished by the companies that it owned entirely. And even today, I think that Berkshire Hathaway is underestimated. Yeah. Warren is not underestimated. But Berkshire Hathaway and its power and might, I do think, is a little bit underestimated. But you have a reputation for delegation. Yeah, you abdica find abdication, right abdication, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I like other people to do the yeah, work, but, Charlie. But, you know, I mean, you're not out on the boat somewhere. You're not out, no. you know, you don't delegate because you want to go do something no. else. What I, you want to do is the same thing you've been doing every day you bet. for a long time. Yeah, I, I, I like I, I like knowing what's going on, but I don't yeah. like, I don't I don't want to direct the orchestra if I want to listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> I once asked him, about what was the allocation of capital? How would he define it? He said, well, they send the money to Omaha, and I invest it. That's right. That's what allocation of capital is. Otherwise, they do that. <laughs> and the CEOs of the subsidiaries say they don't even have to worry about it. They just ship it off to Omaha, and that's it. We'll make it. You spend it. Is, is, that, is that your idea of what makes Berkshire Hathaway great? Well, it gives us 12 or 13 million a year to work with. Do it. All right. These are some pearls of wisdom. Uh, rules of investing. Rule number one: never lose money. <laughs> Rule number two. <laughs> Never forget, forget rule number, number one. one. <laughs> <laughs> career, on a career advice, I think this is very important. I always tell college students to take the job that you would take if you were independently wealthy. You're going to do well at it. True. Right. You and I, right. true. That's absolutely true. And uh, you know that in most companies, uh, merit is recognized. And so what you need to do is to get into a company and show how good you are. And uh, you will get pushed up. That's exactly what I said. Charlie, I, I moved to New York when I was 23. We had a child. We had another one on the way. And I, I took a job with Ben Graham, who was my hero. And I did not know my paycheck until I got uh, my pay until I got my first paycheck. I, mean, I, I never asked, I never, I never, I never asked what the salary was. I just yeah. knew I would love the job. He and your dad still remain the people who had the most influence on you. In well, terms they were, of, yeah, they were huge, but I've had others too. I mean, yeah, yeah Joe Rosenfield, Tom Murphy, I, I, yeah. and my, certainly my wives. And uh, yeah. Carol's had a lot of influence on me. She played bridge with you. <laughs> well, she, no, she had a lot. <laughs> leave aside bridge. She says, I love it. No, 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 no. Well, what would you You call her up every day. Just about every day. Or she calls you every day. No, I, I call her. You call her. Just about every so day. So, what's the conversation about? Uh, Did you see this? It's the kind of thing you'd like. Just depends what's going on. Read this story, that kind of thing. Yeah, it just depends. Uh, there's plenty to talk about. Right, yeah. big, big business events. You know, uh, <laughs> you know, we 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 hadn't been so busy with your the show book. last night. I mean, <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Which you've seen the next morning yeah. when you're working out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's this is another thing. The internet won't change chewing gum. When I look at the internet, I try to figure out how an industry or a company can be hurt or changed by it, and then I avoid it. Right. Take Wrigley's. I don't think the internet is going to change the way people chew gum. Right. Well. You know, the innovations are enormously important for society, but they disrupt a lot of things. And, you know, I used in one of the, the articles in the book 
the auto industry. There are a couple thousand auto companies, and a few succeeded barely. <laughs> and so auto was enormously important. I love the fact it was invented. The airplane was enormously important. Yeah. But if you take all of what's happened in the airline industry since Orville was uh, down there at Kitty Hawk, some capitalist should have shot him down because he's cost his money. I mean, <laughs> what's wrong with the airline industry? Why they're well, it, it, it happens to be selling something that's regarded as very much a commodity product. Right. The incremental seat cost for the airline is nothing. So they've got this temptation to try to fill the last seat at any price. And if you get four or five guys that are trying to fill the last seat at any price, you do not get very good prices. And price goes down. It, it, it just got, it, it's, it's structurally set up so that it's very, very difficult to have a sustained competitive advantage. And uh, you get this enormous fixed investment in planes. Now you've got the plane, it costs you a couple hundred million dollars, and you're trying to fill a seat, and you're reading, reading the newspaper today what your competitor's charging, and you've got to charge the same price. It's, it's, it's got terrible structural aspects to it. And I bought into it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you've also bought into the railroad industry. Yeah. Uh, the freight-carrying railroad industry. Yeah. Uh, Burlington, San... Was it Burlington? BNS, uh, BNS, yeah. Burlington, Northern Santa, 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 Santa Fe. Right. Why'd you do that? Well, I, the, the, the railroad industry carries 42% of all the uh, tonnage intercity. It carries it carrying 500... Uh, carrying a ton of cargo 500 miles on a, di uh, on a gallon of diesel. I mean, it's an enormously efficient way of moving things. And now you have four huge railroads in the United States. They're not going to build any more of them. And it'll be the backbone of, 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 of the movement of goods 50 years from now or 100 years from now. What's his history with derivatives? Well, he has a checkered history uh, with derivatives, I say. First of all, one of the best stories in the book is when, uh, is from 1987, right after the crash of 87. And it's a letter that he wrote to uh, Congressman Dingell. In which he John warned, right, right, absolutely, in which he warned about what could happen uh, with um, uh, with uh, index trading futures, index trading futures trading of index, which uh, was just then being uh, uh, about to be approved by Congress and was approved by it, and Warren warned about that, and if he had been listened to, I think we would be far better off today, uh, and. He has always so that's an early thing about derivatives. So you saw go ahead. I think I, I think I actually wrote the letter in eighty two. Yeah. Oh you wrote the letter yeah. in eighty two, yeah. but yeah. It, we, we, we printed it in eighty seven after the crash. After the troubles came. Yeah. Right. Right. So right. So you wrote the letter but it wasn't printed and it was printed in eighty seven. Fortune yeah. printed it and and uh, and ran it. Yeah. Um, but then on derivatives, um, uh, what I say about Warren is that he really cannot ignore securities that have are mispriced. I think that he you, has... You, you notice that. Huh? <laughs> I, uh, yeah. I, you know, he doesn't go out and buy uh, uh, raw cotton or anything like yeah. that, or not very often. Uh, but, um, but derivatives in his eyes have often been mispriced. So on the, one hand, for him. on the one hand, he'll be writing in the annual report warning about derivatives, and over on the other hand, he'll be buying those that are clearly mispriced. Mr. Buffett, yeah. I plead you. Yeah, well, I, I, we have 200... I, I know every single derivative we own, and they're all the product of my purchase. Now, we, we bought a company called General Re, which had 23000 and it cost us $400 million before we got out of those. And we we tried to liquidate every one. There's still a few left out as fast as you could. Absolutely. Yeah. But the 200 and some that I picked, uh, you know, I think we'll, we'll make money on. But I, 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 I'm familiar with every one of those. I think when you have an instant, well, Lehman had 
probably a million. I mean, and, and you get huge counterparty risks. At General Re, when we went in, we had over 900 counterparties. I didn't even know who three or 400 of them were. I couldn't pronounce their names. I mean, that is not my idea of prudent finance. <laughs> but, but doesn't uh, Dodd-Frank speak to derivatives? It does to some extent, but unlike Warren, I haven't read the whole thing either, and I have not written about it, in which case I really would have an opinion, but I, I, I could not express a strong the, the Volcker rule appeals to me. Does it appeal to you? Yeah, it appeals to me. It's the right thing. In general, yeah. I think, I think, I know, but I think, I think the more banks stick with just pure banking, the better I like it. I mean, they have a franchise from the United States government and that people look at their deposits as guaranteed by the yeah, U.S. Right, government. Right, it's not right. totally correct, but that's what they, and, and when you have the ability to take in money from people who feel that they have the U.S. government behind it, they're going to give you money whether you're credit worthy or not. And therefore, you you need some real regulation to make sure that people don't go wild with that franchise. And and uh, banks uh, with that with those funds and with that trust uh, can do some pretty extreme things, particularly when they've got the, the upside belongs to the management. I don't worry about moral hazard with stockholders. The stockholders got killed in all these banks, but the management's you know they they made lots of money and and they didn't they didn't go away broke. How do you assess, I mean, this is part of that, I think, uh, what happened in 2008 and the subprime? Well, it wasn't just subprime, but it was, it, 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 we, we left, a whole, part of it, we, right? we, had, we had a housing bubble like the world has never right. seen. Well, the housing, housing was $22 trillion at the peak out of maybe total, house, total assets in the United States of $60 trillion or something. So it was an enormous asset, 50 million people, families, had borrowed against that, and they borrowed 11 or 12 trillion. So you had a, an asset that had a huge bubble that was owned on margin, basically, and and people thought it could do nothing but go up, just like sometimes they, in the 20s they thought stocks could do no, uh, do nothing but go up. So when that bubble burst, it not only hit housing, you know, it just started rippling through the economy, and we found out that. Almost every company in the United States was a big domino, and they were lined up very close to each other, and they started toppling. You believe the executives there knew what they were doing? Well, they, they didn't. They did not see the consequences of the, of the domino starting to topple. Yeah. I mean, that people, when the dominoes topple, eventually they get to everybody, and people did not realize how big they were, how close to each other they were. I mean, people looked at Freddie and Fannie, which were the first ones to get in trouble in September, more or less, and then Wamu, and then you know, and then Lehman, and Merrill was going all, and all of a sudden people realized that that if they had bank lines that, that they thought they could call on, it wasn't going to happen. So it it was it was a, it was as close to, to, to the wildest panic I ever saw. The wildest you ever saw. Oh, by by far. Uh, you got out of the hedge fund business uh, in 1960 in 1969. Yeah. You got out because I got out because I I, I didn't. I had a good record up till then. I had all these people counting on me, and I thought things were getting very speculative, and I didn't know how to make money in that period. And I, I was competitive enough to feel that I didn't want to do lousy compared to other people, and yet I didn't want to do the things they were doing. And so the only thing to do was give the money back, and I gave the money back. What do you think of hedge funds today? Well, I think that, uh, you know, I, I made a bet, famous bet that yeah, Carol has right. been keeping track of where I'm betting that hedge, a, gr a large group of hedge funds, I mean, funds of funds will underperform the S&P over time. I mean, how many people have taken it, that bet? <clears throat> well, we, we've got a million dollar uh, bet for charity actually right. out in, uh, uh, in something called long bets. Uh, but 
calling yourself a hedge fund does not make and it, it gives you no special way to make money and and the fees associated with it are very very high and I, I, I do not think the results of hedge funds in aggregate uh, will be better than the S&P, which you can, which you can buy for, uh, you know, for an index. For the years that you didn't do as well as the S&P. Oh, yeah, there's been, uh, there's been a number of years, right? yeah. 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 Well, how does that make you feel? Makes me feel like I better do better next year. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's my job. Have you noticed he's competitive? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no, I, I wouldn't be in his business if I didn't think I was over time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's also the question which always is asked of you a succession. Uh, you have said the board of directors knows who my successor is as of this moment. Tomorrow, they, they, they know tomorrow. If I die tonight, they, no, tomorrow morning tomorrow. they will appoint somebody they know. And the person they appoint does not know he is the one to be appointed. That's correct. Yeah. And will the role be the same role that you have? No, the it'll, be, it'll, be, it'll be half my role. It will be running the businesses and there will be uh, Todd and Ted, these fellows, the two guys they, they, will, they will run investments. The they will run investments. The, my job will be split. Was running it. the businesses as important to you as the investment aspect of it, which you grew up on? Oh, running running the businesses will be more important over time. Sure, no. it, it is but right it does, now. Does it have the same psychic income to you? Yeah, running the business has more psychic satisfaction. This friendship with Bill Gates, you and I have talked about this many mm -hmm. times with you and with Bill, but for this audience at this moment. Um, from the moment that you two had dinner together at Bill's mother's house, and they started, at Bill's father started asking questions about what was a quality that most admired, and I think Bill <laughs> Bill said focus. And yeah, we both answered up, focus. Up. Focus, <laughs> yeah. right, you know. And then you make a decision that you know when it came time after uh, Susie's death that you wanted to do what she would have done uh, to make a, a huge philanthropic. Contribution. You chose Bill because you thought that the Gates Foundation did it right. I chose five foundations, but the Gates was the largest big, one. Yeah, mm -hmm. big one. Uh, but the friendship itself is born out of what? Well, I'm. You know, it's like with Charlie Munger. Anyway, I mean, it, 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 you find the other person very interesting. You find them trustworthy. I mean, it, it, uh, uh, you have a good time with them, and and. Uh, but it's important to point out that there are five foundations, and I've just doubled what I give to each one of my children's foundations. Yeah. So they have over two billion each that, uh, there, and but they they couldn't scale up the same way as 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 Bill. You know, he was already operating on a scale. And, and the amount for Bill's foundation was some well, more they, than thirty billion. Yeah, it would be, and it's, it's probably still about the same. And it, it's five percent of the of a declining balance. So if the stock goes up more than five percent a year, the amount actually keeps increasing. What is it knowing this man as long as you have? Uh, shared as many conversations you have. It, what are you curious about with respect to him? Well, I don't see how he has as much energy as he constantly has. <laughs> I think he draws energy from being out, like talking to you. Um, he, he's he's amazing about that. Um, I worry about my getting tired while he's just out there, just uh, just uh, running around all the time. What am I curious about? Well. I wonder what he thinks in his innermost thoughts sometimes about um, uh, some of his maybe not perfect investments and 
But I'm not I'm not curious about a lot because I, I know an awful knows, lot. She knows every chapter of the book. <laughs> I believe no, I know, no, no, I know. She knows she knows it all. <laughs> I know a lot of it. I know you do. And you know, uh, doing the book, as a matter of fact, kind of uh, refreshed everything that I knew. You know, uh, there is there is this item too. Berkshire Hathaway has overcome General Electric. It is now the sixth largest company in terms of market value, market cap? I haven't looked, but that doesn't surprise me that it's in that area. Well, does, I mean, does that mean anything to you? Well, it, it means... I bet it what, does. What, no, what, what means... <laughs> I bet it does. <laughs> what, it means, what means something is, is, having it out, is having it outperform the general market over time. I mean, uh, uh, my job yeah. is, is to do better for my investors than they would do if they were doing it themselves. And uh, since we retain all the earnings, we will, we've gotten very large, but we'll get a lot larger. <laughs> uh, when you first met him, I think Berkshire Hathaway is $22 a share, something like that? That's right. It is now $130. I, I don't know what it is today, today. but $130,000 a share, and that's the same stock, $22 to $130,000. Class A stock. From it's, it's remarkable. Let me just come back to the nation's health and, and sure. the global economy. Uh, Europe? Europe is, is still drifting downward to some degree. I mean, the, we have businesses that operate worldwide, and and actually, uh, Asia's coming off, you know, the, the best rate of growth. But they're coming they're coming down somewhat. Europe is no been, longer in double digits. Europe has been sliding, you know, for some time, to, uh, and and the U.S. actually is, a, I would say, is the strongest relative to where it was six months ago or nine months ago. The housing is coming back big time. And the emerging nations, I mean, even Brazil, they're Brazil all they have the high... Yeah, you know. yeah. But five years from now, ten years from now, the world everywhere will be doing better, in my view. Because? Just because capitalism and market systems work. I mean, it's been working, you know, since 1776 here. And it wasn't because we had stimulus programs in 1794 or something. Of the sort. Yeah. It's because, you know, a system... Our system unleashes people's potential, and, and we've got 312 million people that want to do better tomorrow than today, and over time that works. Human potential is, is, is still untapped to a big degree, and, and our system does unleash it over time. And we do it in fits and starts, but this country goes forward, and it'll continue to go forward. The luckiest, the luckiest person in history on a probability basis, in my view, is, 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 is the baby being born in the United States today. More so than China, more so than in yeah. places where the uh, base is lower, and they'll have a yeah. greater opportunity to. What what has created the mo most number of billionaires in the last three years? Well, I don't know about the last three years, but the finance created a lot of them, yeah. and and I would say that uh, relative to their contribution to society, <laughs> a disproportionate number. Yeah. Uh, well, that's a point that made. I mean, the, that some people argue that the financial sector is too large a percentage of our economy. When you get a huge capitalistic system. Just the crumbs that fall off the table can make people very rich, particularly if they're very good at, at getting other people to hand them their money and if they get favored tax treatment and a bunch of things. Uh, uh, I said a long time ago that if you want to get rich, you know, uh, per point of IQ and per erg of energy, just hold your nose and go to Wall Street. Well, it, there's, there's a certain truth there. That doesn't mean they're terrible people or anything like that. It just means the payoff there is so much greater uh, relative to what you bring to the party than, than it is in, you know, in, in most aspects of society. Take journalism. You, know. you buy newspapers, community newspapers. Yeah.
Is that simply because you had an opportunity to buy from that particular company, a number of them, or you believe in something or simply this, like Rupert Murdoch, is in your blood? Well, it's, it's in my blood, but I won't pay a price that reflects the fact that it's in my blood. <laughs> Have you ever paid... I mean, I believe you could argue that Rupert, for example, would buy something because he had to have it. That's right. And pay more. That's right. He Believing would. that he could make some kind of efficiencies yeah. and he'd still have it. Yeah. Have you ever done that? I ever would, paid I, I, more I, than you? No, I wouldn't do it in Berkshire Hathaway. I might. That's what you owe to your stockholders. Yeah, I mean, it's their money. That's why we don't... We don't take an editorial. I, I don't dictate an editorial position to the newspapers. We had, we had. Yeah. I voted for Obama. We have 12 newspapers that endorsed. Ten of them endorsed Romney, and you know I'm the CEO. But, but two papers endorsed Obama, which I voted, who I voted for, and and ten endorsed Romney. Uh, speaking of Obama, the president, um, do you think he'll be different in the second term? Someone. He, he won't. What makes he won't, you think he, that, and how? Well, I think the second terms are different than the first terms. I mean, first terms they can be full of landmines too. As you they, know. they can be, but 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 in the first term, to some extent, uh, you and the and your party have to be thinking about your reelection. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, and and uh, a second term certainly frees up that aspect of it. And and then the question is, is how effective you can be in in getting Congress to work with you. I mean, you have access to him. You know, he calls you. and for... I've never called him. No. <laughs> <laughs> I've never called the president. Yeah, but say he calls and you go and you talk to him on the phone and you go meet him. And, and other CEOs, do you think he has a new attitude about business that's come about because of the first four years? I, I think that in the first term, he felt that business misunderstood him. And I think that business felt that, that, that they he misunderstood. Yeah, they yeah, were they misunderstood. misunderstood. I, I just think, I, I, I think they... Do you think they, he believes in and understands that business is the place where oh, jobs oh, are created? No question that about that. No. He knows he's dependent on capitalism working right. and, and that business is part of that. I think that to some extent, when people do feel misunderstood by the other party, it can it can develop its own dynamics. So and that's what happened here. And that, I think that, but I think, I think both sides should just say, forget it, you know, <laughs> wipe the slate clean. And it's it sometimes it's a good idea in human relationships. Generally, I think it's a particularly good idea when when the country's uh, well-being is at stake. So I, I would recommend both sides just say. Maybe I was misunderstood by you, but forget it. We're, to the, we, we work together going yeah, forward. But do you think he wants to do that? Oh, I, mean, I, think, I, I think he wants to succeed <laughs> big yeah. time. And, and I think he will, and I think the economy will, will be a help to him. But I think it's – I mean, that doesn't mean you – know, you, neither side can roll over in, in terms of the things they feel strongly about. But I, I, I feel the, the, the rhetoric certainly should be very civil all the time and I think that you look for ways to work with each would other. Would it send a big signal to the country uh, if he would appoint as Secretary of Treasury someone like Jamie Dimon or Jamie Dimon? Well, I think that, that might be a big signal. Mm -hmm. Appointing Jamie Dimon as Secretary of the Treasury. Well, I think, I think Jamie Dimon actually would be, I, I think he'd be terrific because I think he, I think he if we did run into problems in markets, I think he would actually be the best person you could have in, he knows, in the job. He as much about markets as he, most and, and I think the world leaders would have And so when you see him. a problem that's like Jamie's had with London and the whale and all that, what do you mark that up to? If you run a, a $2 trillion institution, if I run Berkshire for decades, you know, some things are going to go wrong. I mean, if you run... If you run an army, if you run a church, if you run a government, any large institution, 
people will go off the reservation sometimes, and, and sometimes they'll get away with it for a long period. And, of course, when you work in a financial institution, you can add a lot of zeros very quickly. Uh, so... You know, I, it, obviously, you know, there was a there was a failure of control, but there's been failures of control in Berkshire. I mean, I, I, I am going I am going to make more mistakes. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I'll, I hope I minimize. I hope I catch them fast. But there can be mistakes and there can be big mistakes. Should bull Simpson be the operating model from the menu that they operate on? And do you have believe that's the direction to go? Well, I think the menu should be the to come up with something that raises 18.5% of GDP in revenues and it, it embodies and, and with very with no loopholes, basically, the idea of a progressive tax system. And I think that expenditures should be reduced to the 21% of GDP level. And I think that will be very sustainable, those ratios. It will uh, not eliminate the deficit of the debt. It doesn't. It doesn't. It eliminates. It does not eliminate the annual deficit. Right. It keeps the debt as a percentage of GDP constant. And, and that's we, what we can live with. And that's we can live with. I mean, the net debt is, is in the 70s. It's around 73 percent or something like that. And that's what we always talked about until everybody got excited lately. That was 120 percent coming out of World War II. And it will stay in the 70s. It might even come down into the 60s. If we uh, the 18 and a half and 21 will not increase the, the ratio of debt to GDP. And it very well may bring it down slightly. What has this meant to you, this friendship with Warren Buffett? Oh, well, it's been, it's been a wonderful friendship. Can you imagine the chance to talk to Warren Buffett about almost anything, to, to ask his opinion about every story that you've ever had on your mind? Um, uh, it's, um, it's, it's priceless. And, um, and it's been priceless in a way to go at this book and to put it all, see it all put down again, to add my introductions, and to see how good fortune was at staying with this man. As, uh, as I say, uh, we, we were standing by while Warren Buffett was becoming Warren Buffett. And uh, it was a remarkable thing that we were allowed to do, and uh, I loved it. I'm smart enough to give her the last word. <laughs> you are smart. <laughs> this book is called Tap Dancing to Work, Warren Buffett, on practically everything from 1966 to 2012, collected and expanded by Carol J. Loomis. Thank you. Thank you, Thank Charlie. You. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you for joining us. See you next time.